We dive into 2 Kings chapter 6, and this is one of those texts of Scripture that um, I wish that I was a, a topical preacher, because then you could just avoid the things that maybe you didn't like so much or didn't want to talk about, and uh, you could go into more happy things. But we don't do that. We just follow a, a certain a life or a text or a book, and whatever we face, that's what we deal with. And so that's where we are this morning as we come to uh, this next kind of glimpse into Elisha's life in Elisha's world. And so if you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me, starting at verse 24 of chapter 6, and we'll go to uh, verse 2 of chapter 7. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it, until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cob of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the fleshing, threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son that we may eat him. But she had hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath his body. And he said, My God, do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes... Shut the door and hold it fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for him any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Tomorrow about this time a say of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two says of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. And the captain of the guard on whose, the king, on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if God himself should make windows in heaven, could this be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat. Father, help us, I pray. Your word is given to us for a purpose and a reason. Uh, give us... Um, hearts that are soft before you, that will wait and listen before we respond. Give us eyes that see past things that at first glance abhor us, and give us hear, ears to hear your spirit speak, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. At the heart of this account, as I mentioned, are the record of two consecutive days, one day after the other. And as many of you know and have experienced in your life, it's amazing what a day can hold. We live many, many of our days that are just simply ordinary days. 
But then there are those days in which our relationship with God is tested in ways and in extremities that we never, ever, ever thought possible. Ways that we could never anticipate or even imagine. It doesn't mean that those everyday ordinary days are any less godless or that God is not present in those days. But it simply means that in some particular days, our relationship with God is tested and tried in ways that we could never imagine. You think about some of the great days in history of the Bible, for instance. We think of the day that Eve and Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and the good and evil. We think of the day that all of a sudden the rains from heaven and underneath the earth were unleashed and that day Noah entered into the ark and the world was covered with water. There was that day when God sent fire from heaven and destroyed the cities on the plains. There was the day that God delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians on that day when the Red Sea parted and they went through on dry ground and God closed the water up over the Egyptian army. There was the day, what a remarkable day. If you want to read just a day in which your world turns upside down, read Esther chapter 8 and the downfall of Haman and the reversal of events that took place in a single day. Think about the day that Job's life was absolutely turned upside down and his world rocked. Think about the day Mary was told that she was going to have a child and she had never had sexual relations with a man. Think about the day that Jesus was arrested and then murdered. Think about the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. Think about the day that the thief arrived in paradise. This day you will be with me in paradise. Wow! What a day! Think about the day that Jesus Christ returns. These are just a sliver of biblical days which describe extraordinary events. Have you ever had a day like that? I suspect many of you have. A day where you got up in the morning and everything was wonderful and the end of the day your world had been turned upside down. How do we process those kind of days? As we come to this particular text, the first heading and we'll spend most of our time there is just thinking through desperate times call for desperate measures. We've all heard that saying. And we need a little bit of background into this day that is described in this text. And the background is simply from the text where it says, Afterward, Ben-Hadea, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it. And so that gives us a little bit of the run-up to what is going on. The king was no longer in any mood to just carry out little raids into Israel. He now wanted a full-on destruction of Samaria. And so he mustered his entire army. He wasn't in a good mood, and the city was in trouble. A siege is never a good thing. If you ever read anything about sieges or know anything about a siege, a siege is intended to starve a population into submission. The modern-day equivalent of a siege uh, can be um, sanctions that are leveled against a country. There are countries in the modern world today in which we live that have been brought to their knees by economic sanctions of various kinds. The residents of Samaria, therefore, were under siege. They were trapped behind the walls of their city. They can't go out, and nothing and no one can come in. The flow of even the most basic necessities of their lives has been absolutely stopped. 
Often when cities were placed under siege, the army would find the water sources and they would stop them up or they would poison them. The impact on a citizenry, citizen, I can't even say that word, the people of the city was absolutely cruel. So the Syrians have laid siege to Samaria. The effect of the siege was not unexpected. After all, that's why you siege a city or besiege a city. And here we find that the effect of the relentless siege is now finally um, spoken of in two results that have happened. The first is a donkey's head. A donkey's head, part of an animal which was um, off limits for Israelites, but a donkey's head was sold for an exorbitant amount of money. By one, person, one person's calculation, the amount of silver that is described here is 80 months of a general laborer's salary. That's how desperate times had become because of the siege. A cup of dove's dung, which it could be what is meant here, which would have been used for fire, but I think it probably was a pint of carob pods, which also is a translation that some texts give, was going for an equally obscene amount of five months' wages, just for a tiny little bit to stave off the last bit of your life. The picture here is one of utter desperation. It has not been good days, but the next day, or the day that's described here, would be a snapping day, so to speak. And as the day probably started, like so many others, everybody's stomach was grumbling. Everybody was on pins and needles. No one could have thought what this particular day would hold. They would become a catalyst for anger towards God. They would become a catalyst for shame and disgust towards individuals. They would be a day in which faith was challenged. And the human desperation that's described in these verses, if you just stop and work it through in a little bit, is intense. You can hear the frustration in the king. You can sense the frustration of mothers who would make a bargain to boil their children for their next meal. And in these verses, we see four people's response on that particular day. The first is the response of the king. In difficult times, particularly for those in leadership, it's a lot easier to live just unaware of realities, to not want to dive in and see what's going on amongst your people. After all, we all have our own issues to deal with, and we're told the king was out for a stroll on the wall, probably on the inner wall of the city because he didn't want to get picked off by an arrow from the enemy. But it would seem that as this king had got up this morning, he was wrestling with God. Why else would he have sackcloth under his robe? I suspect that he wasn't just thinking about the physical impact of the siege that this, his city had been under for a long period of time. He was wrestling with the cause of the siege. And in this instance, I think probably Elisha had spoken to him and talked to him about the reality of what lay behind this siege. Possibly this was very much like what was threatened to Nineveh when Jonah was sent in there and said, listen, you need to tell the Ninevites to repent because if they don't repent, God is going to destroy the city. And the response of the king and all the citizenry was to put on sackcloth and rent their garments and fast for 
three days in hopes that God would reverse his decision. So had there been such a a word that had been mentioned to the king of Israel here by Elisha, king, you need to repent. This is of the Lord, and you need to call out to God, you need to go before God, and you need to repent of your sins and the sins of this people. Either purposely, though, or out of ignorance, he was unaware of the condition of his sheep. That is until the voice of a desperate woman, and I don't know if you've ever heard the voice of a desperate woman, and I will not even try to repeat it, but she simply cries out, my Lord the King, help. What this mother would next say gives us a sense of the desperation of her plea, doesn't it? This was a woman in grief. This was a woman with regret. This was a woman who was angry. And you can sense the frustration in the king's response now, can't you? If the Lord doesn't help you, where do you expect me to be able to help you? He says there's no grain in the threshing floors and there's no uh, um, grapes for the, for the wine press. Don't look to me. It's God who has let you down. I suspect it might have been the same king that was there when Naaman came and he had no idea of the God of heaven. He really had no idea um, of Elisha in his land. Um, He just simply responded in a way that many would respond, well, if God can help you, whoever he might be, how do you expect me to help you? But at least he's able to ask the woman, what's the matter? And I suspect that's a question he regretted asking. I don't know if there's anything that could have prepared him for the answer that he received, except for God's word, which we'll look at in a moment. And then there's the mother. What this mother describes is both an ancient and a modern reality where women in countries of our world, even today, and men have been driven to eating their children. Hunger is a strange beast. And I expect that where this first hit the king was the horror of his answer. But it's fascinating to me that the king's fury was directed at God. See, while the text is silent, this siege is God's doing, I believe, and it points to a place back in the book of Deuteronomy, which describes what would happen when the people of God turn from God. Like the covenant bearers that we talked about in 2 Kings chapter 2, this was a covenant siege. This siege may have been undertaken by the king of Samaria or Syria, but this king was an instrument of divine justice. And no matter how we squirm under such a realization, God is not constrained by our sensibilities. He is a God of his word. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses outlined before the people the blessings that would come from obedience and the curses that would fall because of disobedience. There's a portion of those curses which explain this siege. You shall eat the fruit of your womb. 
the flesh of your sons and your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. The man who is most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating because he has nothing else left in the seat, or he has nothing else left in the siege and in the distress which your enemies shall distress you in all your towns. The most tender and refined woman among you, who would not venture to set a sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender, will begrudge to her husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes from between her legs and her children, or and her children whom she bears, because lacking everything, she will eat them secretly in a siege and in the distress in which your enemy shall distress you in your towns. Had Elisha reminded the king of the word of God, does that explain the sackcloth again under his robe? But it seems that as the king processed, to process this, with this act, God had gone too far. Siege was one thing. The details of the siege were another thing. The reality of these mothers seemed to push him over the edge. He wanted nothing more to do with God. He might have been waiting for God to answer, but no longer. He might have been seeking God in repentance, but this was too much. Someone's going to die. And he sets his sight on Elisha, the man of God, the nearest thing to God. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Have we not witnessed such responses to a day in our lives or in the lives somebody we have talked to? If you've walked among the people of God long enough, you know those who have finally given up on God because of a day in which it seemed that God had done something that no God could ever do or concluded that if this is what God is like, I want nothing more to do with him. If this is what God is like, they say to themselves, I want nothing to do with him. And then there's Elisha. What's Elisha doing during this day? We have the king walking on the wall. We have the two mothers fighting over their children. Well, Elisha is sitting in his house with a group of elders. We're not told what they're doing or why they are gathered there. They're simply sitting there together. I wonder, though, if they were maybe praying, if they were maybe calling out on the Lord, if they were seeking God like the 120 were seeking the Lord up in the upper room. I don't know for sure, but one of the things at least that pushes me towards that is because Elisha received a word. And the word told him that there was a man coming for his life. Elisha knew what the king of Syria was doing. He now knew what the king of Israel was up to. And having been forewarned, Uh, by that word. He tells the men sitting with him, listen, go put all the furniture up against the door, put a bar across the door, and don't let this guy in. And no sooner had they done that when there's a knock and the king's executioner has arrived. I suspect that close on the heels of this messenger was the king himself. I'm not absolutely sure of that. And you can read multiple translations. And you can read some that say the messenger said, or some that say the king said. And The messenger spoke for the king, but was it actually the messenger speaking on behalf of the king or the king himself? I'm not sure. But the words that he spoke to Elisha are, 
extraordinary. This misery plainly comes from the Lord. Why should I trust in Yahweh? Another one says this, Behold, this evil is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Another translation says, This disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Another says, This calamity is from the Lord. What more can I hope for from the Lord? You can see that the translators are wrestling with the Hebrew word ra'ah, which can be variously translated disaster, calamity, evil. But do you hear what's being said by the king there? I have trusted in the Lord long enough. If this is the outcome of that trust, then no more. In the quietness of one's heart, over a cup of coffee in the back of a little bakery, these words have been uttered again and again and again. This is too much for me to bear. This is too painful for me to accept from your hand. God, you've gone too far. The sheer thought of a God who allows things like this to happen leaves too many unanswered questions in my life. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? The king wanted nothing more to do with the Lord. He didn't want anything to do with this kind of sovereignty. Surely a cannibalizing mother displayed God's lack of power, concern, or awareness of anything that's happening on earth. Why should I trust a God like that? What do you do? What do you do when the sovereign God who made the heavens and the earth unfolds that sovereignty through a providence that shocks your senses? I know many of you have faced days like that. My heart aches for you when you do. There's so much that I wish I could say. There's so much that I wish I could do. And I realize over years of talking with so many people that the pain of one's circumstances can be so great that it hides God's, God from view. And the temptation is to turn and walk away. Don't. I read portions of Job because I happen to be in Job again in this last little while. And Job had a day like this. And I went back and reread his words probably weeks, maybe months later as he was coming out the other side of his painful day. And it, I'm always struck, and you may have also been struck by the same thing. God never answers the question, why, to Job. Never. But God revealed himself to Job in a way that brought Job back to reality, so to speak. And this was Job's response at the end of a period of time, as he processed this and as he hung on to God and as he clung to God and as God never let him go. He says, I know you can do anything. You could have even prevented the day 
in which my life was destroyed. He says, I know that no plan of yours can be thwarted. That even that day when my life was turned upside down, you were not caught off guard. Surely I spoke, he says, of things I had no clue of. To be truly God, loved ones, does it not stand to reason that there will be a great deal about him and his ways that we don't know about? After all, is that not what a God worthy of our trust should be like? Bigger, stronger, smarter, more powerful? I've got this in my hands kind of God? I've heard rumors about you. But they don't do justice to the truth that you've revealed to me. And then he says, my eyes have been opened. I suspect that all of us, when we walk through these kind of dark days, that's all we want is, God, I just need to see you. I just, I just need a glimpse of you. I, just, just show yourself to me. Reveal something of yourself to me. It doesn't always happen overnight, but if you hang on there and hang in there, and it may not come until eternity, your eyes will be open. And then Job says something fascinating. He says, I take back my words. Have you ever had to take back words that you've said to your spouse in anger or to your children in anger or children to their fathers in anger? You're mad, you're frustrated, you're ticked off. And you say things that you just shouldn't say. And you read the book of Job and there's a lot of things that he said that he probably shouldn't have said. And so... It's amazing to me. He says, I take back those things I said about you, God. They're just not right. They're not who you are. And then he said, I repent. What a painful day that was in Samaria. But then we look to verse 7, or chapter 7, and we see a little bit how that day ends in the anticipation of another day. And the way I entitled this was simply, Deliverances Belong to the Lord, Not Politicians. There's a couple of things that struck me as I went through this. The first is this. Government is not your savior. Government is not my savior. Remember the words of the king of Israel as he was walking on the wall? Don't look for me to help you. This is a clear reminder of the limits of earthly power. It's a clear reminder of the limits of those who are, in, uh, who are given and trusted with leadership over us. They, they don't know everything. They can't know everything. They don't have all things under control. Um, and so it's a, just a reminder that we ought not to look for earthly leaders to be our savior. One wrote, this narrative makes an argument about the ineffectiveness of royal power in a situation only Yahweh can reverse. The government simply can't find a solution, and yet, aren't many of us in the West sucked into thinking our governments are somehow a big chunk of our hope? Loved ones, the government is not our hope. Governments don't cope well in troubled times. They are befuddled by sieges that they find their citizens in. Second, 
As this day ends, another day dawns. Commerce will resume about this time tomorrow. The shelves may not be full, but there will be affordable food for all. I really don't know how I would have responded to that word if I had been in the audience there. The siege had become so severe that the price of a donkey's head was absolutely out of control. Inflation gone nuts. The price of something for fire or something to eat was equally crazy. Desperation had set in. The fields had been pillaged. The storehouses were empty. The wine presses were idle. What do you mean tomorrow? What do you mean that tomorrow all this will be reversed? Just let that sink in, loved ones. How do you go from utter desperation and starvation to in 24 hours almost a normal economy? This is how. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. And we say, well, what's this? What word? Whose word? What do we make of such a word? Loved ones, is this not God's word? As we walk through these days in which we're walking, hear the word of the Lord. Trust his promises. Heed his warnings. Submit to his commands. Thus saith the Lord. Apparently, the captain of the guard wasn't on the same page as Elisha. He wasn't impressed. He'd probably long since turned his back on the word of the Lord and even probably maybe some of the things Elisha had said. It made no difference to his life. It occupied no space in his mind. Beloved ones, we're wrestling with the reality of God, the power of his word. In the beginning, God said, and there was light, and there was creation, and there were stars. What is this God who speaks? Who is this God who speaks? Who is the maker of heaven and earth? Embed this truth in your mind. What is possible for God cannot be measured by what is conceivable for man. That's what I get out of this Elisha's hear the word of the Lord. This guard, he couldn't conceive of that even if the heavens were to open. Are you nuts, man? There's no God like that. No, there is a God like that. We might not be able to conceive of a God who created this world in seven days. But there is a God who created this world in seven days. We might not be able to conceive of a God who can raise someone from the dead, but there is. Our God can raise somebody from the dead. We might not be able to conceive of a virgin who can become pregnant without ever having sexual relations. But our God can make her be with child. We might not be able to conceive that God could destroy this whole earth and create a new heavens and an earth, new earth, but the word of the Lord says, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine, what God has prepared for those who love him. I can't conceive what God has for me, but God has got something just that will blow my mind awaiting for me. Behold, one of my favorite verses in Job, behold, 
These are but the outskirts of his ways. As God had revealed a little bit of himself to Job. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear from him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? Can you understand the greatness of God? I'd love to go for coffee with you if you can. Now to him who is able to do abundantly more than we ask or imagine. According to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church now and forevermore through Christ Jesus. Loved ones, hear the word of the Lord. That should be enough for us on any day. The worst day of our life, the best day of our life, and every day in between, hear the word of the Lord. As that day ended, things have come to a head. We have a donkey's head. We have one wanting to take the head of Elisha off his shoulders. And the desperate situations have come to a head. But let me just make one more application of this. And this is just my thinking, but it has helped me. Back on August 30th of 2020, we were talking about Abraham. And we said of Abraham, we looked at that text and it said there was a famine in the land. And Abraham went down to Egypt. It was the worst thing he could have done. He almost derailed God's plan for his life. He needed to think about the famine in the land. And so, do you remember the word that I replaced for famine? There was a virus in the land. Don't go down to Egypt. And so as we come to this particular text, I was reflecting on this idea of siege. It feels like we've been under siege. I don't know if it's coming to a head. I, I don't know how much longer it will last, but it feels like we've been under siege for almost two years. I'm aware of many of your frustrations. I'm, many, I'm aware of the differences of opinion that exist amongst us. I am aware of different views towards governments and authority, and I'm aware of different understandings of the nature of rights and human rights, and are there some, and if there are, what are they? I'm aware of people's love for masks. I'm aware of people's fear of not wearing masks. I'm aware of injections. I'm aware of not getting injections. I'm aware of the vast amount of differences of opinion that exist amongst us as we are under siege. Our desire has been to not talk about the virus from the pulpit, not because we're not aware of it, because we want you to hear the word of the Lord. Amen. We need God's word to guide us. We need God's word to help us. We need to God's word to determine how we live when we feel like we're under siege. Amen. We each have a story to tell about what it's been like for us to live in these last two years. And they are different stories. Just like the king's story is different from the mother's story, is different from Elisha's story, is different from the captain of the guard's story. They are all different stories, but they're legitimate stories. And they are their, their experience of living on that particular day. And the thing that has struck me, and it may be just me, but I was thinking that it seems that the siege is peaking, kind of like a donkey's head being sold for this and a pigeon's dung being sold for that, and the cracks are beginning to show. And please don't misunderstand this statement. 
when I say this. The government is not our hope. That doesn't mean we ought not to obey them. It doesn't mean we ought not to submit to them. It doesn't mean that God has not placed them over us and given them authority over us, whatever that might look like and work through in our life. But the government is not our hope. God is our hope. Human desperation is real. I get it. I I know what some of you have lived through. I know the destruction that has happened in your homes as you can't visit children, as differences of opinion have invaded your family, your intimate circles. I know what it's like to talk to somebody whose spouse is dying in the hospital and they're unable to visit them. Is that not a siege? Have we given up faith in God like the king? If God won't help you, what am I supposed to do? Have we placed our trust in human government like this mother had done and said, oh, king, help me? Or do we believe that God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine? That what we cannot conceive of, God can and will do. I don't know what it will look like. But I know my hope is in God, not in this government or any government around the world. And it never will be. Psalm 146. I hope this is the right psalm. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed be the God, or blessed be he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and at all that is in him, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. There is no salvation in anybody else than Jesus Christ. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I urge you, Turn to Christ. Turn to him today. Allow him to take over your anxieties and your fears. There is salvation in no one else but Jesus Christ. And as it relates to life and eternity, Revelation says salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. Loved ones, hope in the Lord. He is able to secure us and he is able to provide for us. Trust in him. Father, we thank you for your word today. And uh, as we work it through, Father, would you help us to make sense of first understanding the word as you have given it to us. And then carefully as we try and apply it in our lives in the day and age in which we live. Spirit of God, speak to our hearts. Father, for any that are here today that have experienced a day where all they want to do is give up hope in you, don't let them go. Father, don't let them go. Draw them back to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.